Good morning. Uh, as Jeremy said, uh, my name is Jarrett Henley. Uh, in this clip from Lost in Translation, uh, we can see that uh, because of Bill Murray's character's um, translator doing an inadequate job, he's left pretty confused and not sure how to act in the way the director is asking him to. Uh, hopefully that primes our imaginations for uh, the main passage this morning, which is the Tower of Babel, an account of when God confused the languages of the world. But also, of course, uh, this is relevant to my own life. As Jeremy said, my wife and I and our two boys, Jasper and Josie, we moved, or we are missionaries serving in Japan. Uh, we moved there in March of 2020, uh, specifically to the city of Tokyo. We've been back this summer for a, sh a short furlough, but we'll return to Tokyo in about 10 days on the 22nd. So we're kind of just squeezing it in here. Uh, and we plan to serve there pretty much indefinitely. In Japan, most people speak Japanese, and very few people, even in Tokyo, speak English. And so we spent our last two years really focusing on language acquisition. And when we get back, uh, we'll be working in an internship with a church in our area as we move towards our long-term goal, which is working alongside Japanese Christians and other missionaries to plant churches. And so this morning, I have the privilege of sharing with you on Go Sunday, uh, and we'll just take a little bit to look at God's heart for missions in the Word of God. As I mentioned a moment ago, we'll be looking at the Tower of Babel. You can find that in Genesis 11. If you have your Bible, you can turn there, and we'll read in just a minute. Um, but before we hop in, I'm just going to go over the context, the previous 10 chapters, very briefly. In the beginning, God created all things. This culminates in the creation of mankind through Adam and Eve, uh, who are made in the image of God, and they are given a mandate to be fruitful and multiply for the glory of God. But as we know, they are deceived by the serpent Satan and disobey God and plunge the whole world into the curse of sin. But as they're being cast out of the garden, God makes a promise that one day a descendant will come from Eve and that descendant will make all things right. From there, we follow uh, their descendants, their immediate descendants, uh, but with every generation, things get worse and worse until it's so bad that God decides to flood the earth and start over with the family of Noah. And he even gives Noah the same commission that he gave Adam and Eve, to be fruitful and multiply, spreading image bearers across the earth. And so then in chapter 10, we get a record of the table of nations, which is basically a genealogy from Noah into the nations of that time. But in a twist, chapter 11 backtracks and tells us how those nations came to be. And so if you'll read with me, again, we're in Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heaven so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scat scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That's why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. 
From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. So let's unpack this passage a little bit. In verse 1, everyone, all of mankind over the whole earth, speaks a common language. And eventually some of them settle in a place called Shinar, which was a fertile area in the east, and it would have been ideal for many ways in living. But their command was to spread. And rather than doing that, they congregate and they decide to build a city and a tower. And verse 4 tells us why. So that we may make a name for ourselves, otherwise will we be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They wanted a name for themselves. They wanted significance. God had created man to glorify him, but at Babel they chose to elevate their own name above the name of God. And so they build this tower, and they build it up into the heavens almost as if they are trying to reach or rival God. Like every man and woman since the fall, they at Babel, instead of glorifying God, wanted to become like God. And secondly, they said they didn't want to be scattered. They wanted security. Many commentators throughout church history, when they look at this passage, they pick up on the fact that uh, probably part of the reason they built the city was as flood insurance. Of course, in the previous generations, the world had been flooded. And God made his promise to Noah that he would never flood the earth again by establishing a rainbow in the, in the sky as a sign. But those at Babel, rather than trusting in the promise of the Lord, they decided to trust and gain security through their own means. God created us to have dependence on him. But like every man and woman since the fall, they at Babel, instead of relying on God, trusted in themselves. And so we see that in this passage, the formation of the nations described in chapter 10 doesn't come from generations of obedience after Noah, but rather generational disobedience. And it's so bad that God has to intervene again. He comes down in verse 7, and seeing that in their unified rebellion there is no limit to the evil they can accomplish, he confuses the languages of man and forces them to scatter across the face of the earth. He intervenes and divides them into separate nations for his own glory. And so baked into this passage, we have both reminders of God's creation, both of mankind and of the nation specifically, and we also see the rebellion and fall of mankind that the nations were born into. The image of God that is a part of the identity of man comes out in the unique cultures of the world. Perhaps some of you went to the Japanese festival at Botanical Gardens just last weekend, or maybe a few weeks before that, you went to the Festival of Nations at Tower Grove Park. It's at events like those that we often can easily see the beauty of the cultures of the world. It comes out in dress and music and dance and of course in food. And it also, if you get a little more acquainted with these cultures, it comes out in some of their values and customs as well, aspects where they actually show the creativity and the identity, the image, rather, of God himself. We, of course, have experienced this ourselves in Tokyo, not just through food and things like that, um, but, but one place that we notice this is in the public safety in Japan. Even in Tokyo, which is an urban city center, it is shockingly safe because it's a collectivist culture, generally speaking, uh, people's value is to care for those around them, and this creates um, an interesting society where, in a lot of ways, at least in daylight, at least in the public, people are looking out for each other's interests. 
A somewhat famous example of this is that if you lose your wallet in Japan as a tourist or as a, a local resident, it almost always is returned to a local police box and you can go and fill out some paperwork and get it back and it usually has everything still inside. They don't take the money out. And this actually happened to me a year ago. I got off the bus and I dropped my wallet somewhere. Somebody picked it up, walked a half mile, turned it into the police station, and I was able to get it back. Not a single cent missing. All my ID cards, all my credit cards still present. The collectivist mindset of Japan leads to this beautiful cultural phenomena that's somewhat rare in other countries all over the world. God's indelible image has made a mark on every culture across the face of the earth. And even in the midst of the nation's rebellion, they still glorify God in their beauty. But like the people at Babel, they do indeed rebel. They are in rebellion. Romans 1 tells us this as Paul writes about the fallenness of mankind. First, he explains that all mankind knows about God, even if they haven't heard about Jesus. It says that God has made himself plain to the nations through creation. And therefore, they have no excuse. They can look up in the sky. Then he continues in verse 21 with the following passage. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So all nations are lost in the rebellion and they're held accountable for it. And the way that mankind trades the truth of God for a lie is through idolatry. The nations worship the things that God has created. We worship the things that God has created instead of God himself, the creator. This is true about Japan as well. In our context, we have literal idols. There are shrines and temples that are dedicated to Buddhas and little g-gods and even ancestors. And they're everywhere. We have one that's 100 feet in front of our apartment. You can see a picture of it there. It's never without fresh flowers, and we often see people walking by and making prayers. Also, like us here in the United States, they worship money and status, striving to build up their own significance and security in finances and fame apart from God. Or they put their faith in the cultural traditions, societal structures, or political powers of their nation instead of in God. Though all nations are beautiful and made up of people in the image of God, they're also marred by the stain of sin and rebel in idolatry, swayed to and fro by these dead and lifeless man-made idols. Romans 1 also tells us that in this rebellion, in this breakdown of the relationship between God and man, there's a breakdown in the relationship between mankind amongst ourselves. In verse 28, it reads, Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind. And then it describes this depraved mind with a list of different types of wickedness, most of which are sin against fellow man. And closing in 31, uh, it makes this, he, Paul makes this declaration. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Uh, many commentators argue that in Genesis 11, the phrase, come, let's make bricks, is probably an allusion to slavery. Moses wrote the book of Genesis, and he wrote it after the exodus from Egypt, where the Israelites were forced through slavery to make the same type of mud brick uh, that is described by the Hebrew word in this passage. 
And historically, we know that these mud bricks were never made at scale except through forced slavery of other human beings. But whether or not that illusion is intentional in this passage, we know from the Romans 1 passage that rebellion against God always results in sin against man. Sadly, in Japan, the same collectivist quality that leads to public safety also puts immense pressure on children, especially in the school system. In Japan, suicide is the leading cause of death among children and teens. It's number one. On September 1st, uh, we see the highest number of child suicides every year. The school year starts in April, uh, and oftentimes kids that uh, don't measure up or, or stick out in some ways, they experience being ignored or ruthlessly bullied in that context. There's a big summer break for about six weeks that starts in July, and then the second semester starts up on September 1st. And tragically, many of these children choose to take their own lives instead of re-entering the daily pain of bullying. The truth is that all people and all nations, this one included, Japan included and the states included, we, we image God in some ways. We have, we have parts of our culture that beautifully reflect his glory. But we are also marred by sin, serving idols, choosing our own significance and security over the glory of God. And through this, we harm our fellow man in the course of, as sin runs its course in the, in the form of human relationships and even the fabric of society itself. This is bad news. Without God's intervention, we have no hope. But praise God that he loves the nations he has created and has been working a plan to redeem them since even before they were formed. Immediately after the Tower of Babel passage, we get a genealogy that leads up to Abram. And Abram himself, a part of these, one of these post-Babel idolatrous nations, is called by God in Genesis 12. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse and all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you, through you, excuse me. And here, the promise of that coming descendant of Eve who will make all things right, it continues through Abraham and the nation of Israel. So even though the story kind of zooms into focus on the nation of Israel, God makes this promise that through them, all of the nations, all of the peoples of the world will be blessed. And this plan continues throughout the Old Testament. There's, a, there's sort of drama of the story um, as it unfolds, chapter after chapter, book after book. And over and over, unfortunately, Israel is unfaithful. They turn back to idols. They look for their safety and their significance apart from God. They live wickedly amongst each, other's, amongst each other. And ultimately, they fail to be a light or a blessing to the nations around them. But God himself remains faithful. And even as he rebukes them through the prophets, he also continues to make promises that elaborate how and why and by whom he will save his people and make good on all of his previous covenants. We know this culminates in the birth of Jesus, who is the light of the world, or as Isaiah says it in chapter 11, the root of Jesse who will stand as a banner for the peoples of the world and whom the nations will rally to. You see, unlike Adam and Eve or the people at Babel or us sitting here in this room, Jesus lived a perfect life. Everything he did was for the glory of the Father. He never for even a moment was out of the Father's will for his life. He was faithful to love all of those around him, not just his fellow Jewish kinsmen, but also Gentiles like you 
and me, many of us, I assume most of us as well. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live. And he followed God's plan for the ransom of the nations, even unto his own death on the cross. The Bible says that he became sin for the, for he became sin who knew no sin. He became a curse in our place. He bore our shame and our iniquity. He died a death that we deserved. And on the third day, he rose from the grave, proving his identity as the Christ, defeating sin and death and hell, and making a way for people of every tribe and tongue and nation to be reconciled to God the Father as worshipers and co-heirs to the kingdom of heaven forever and ever. This is the gospel. It's the good news that we celebrate every Sunday and that churches around the world do as well. It's the reason we sing and listen to the preached word and take communion. All of these things are to remember and recite and rejoice in the hope that we have in Christ, the Savior of the world. But here's the deal. If you're sitting in here and you've heard this message before, somebody told you. And before that, somebody told them. And before that, somebody told that person as well. Before Jesus ascended into the heavens, he gathered his disciples and gave what we often call the Great Commission in Matthew 28. It says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And after he left, he sent the Spirit at Pentecost, fulfilling his promise to be with us to the end of the age. And it fell in a powerful re reversal of Babel, when foreign Jews, gathered from the corners of the world for Pentecost, said of the gathered disciples, we hear them declaring the wonder of God in our own tongues. From here, Christianity explodes, and the disciples of Jesus go out into the world, and they make more disciples, and those disciples make disciples, and so on and so forth, until the gospel has been taken from Jerusalem all the way to the corners of the known world at that time. And that pattern of going and sending continues throughout the history of the world, so that today we can sit here together and worship Jesus, even though we are 6,500 miles from where the story started. But the reason that we gather this morning for Go Sunday is because not all have heard this message, and we still are under this command from Jesus to make disciples of all nations. We still bear a responsibility not just to make disciples locally, but also to the ends of the earth. You all probably know this better than I do, but over 12% of this church's budget goes towards missions. Some of that work, like Strategic Alliance and the partnership there, and the short-term trips to Belize, is mercy and justice work. A part of taking Matthew 28 seriously is obeying and teaching everything we have been commanded by Christ. And throughout all four Gospels, Jesus consistently calls us to care for the poor, the oppressed, and the vulnerable of the world as a foretaste of the kingdom of heaven in which all things will be made right particularly in light of economic gaps between the global north and the global south, we have an, an opportunity, a, um, really a responsibility, to participate in this kind of international mercy and justice work, which is an important cause of Christ, especially, for, again, for the church in the U.S. with all of our blessings. I think there's a burden there that we need to fulfill. And outside of service mission work, mercy and justice work, uh, focused in the Western Hemisphere, 
Uh, the other part, the other half or so of Rooftop's mission giving prioritizes unreached people groups living in the 1040 window. In the same way that the partnerships in Reynosa and Belize seek to alleviate poverty caused by economic disparity, this priority on unreached people groups seeks to address spiritual poverty caused by inequality in access to the gospel. There's about 17,000 distinct people groups throughout the world. They're separated by language and country borders and culture. And 7,400 of them are still considered unreached. Most of those are located in this 1040 window, which is a belt of the world that covers North Africa, the Middle East, and much of Asia. Japan is an example of one of these countries. Japanese people living in Japan actually make up the second largest unreached people group in the world. They say that the number of Christians in Japan, which is only 0.3% of the population, is so small that 95% of the population lives and dies without ever hearing the gospel. Many of them never even meet a Christian. Moving to Japan has really confirmed this uh, through our experiences. Outside of a church service, we've only met two Christians in our neighborhood, and one of them invited us to go to a cult the next week. Apart from them, we've only met three women who have relationships with Christians, and two of those women met their Christian friends in the West when they studied abroad. The truth is that almost every single one of our Japanese friends has no other relationship apart from us through which they can hear the gospel of Jesus. We heard about this 10 years ago, and it's why we felt burdened and called to go to Japan. We knew about God's heart for the nations from Genesis to Revelation. We knew the stats, the spiritual state of Japan. We also knew what Paul says in Romans 10. And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? And so once we knew about this, there was a sense in which we couldn't go. We had to do something with the knowledge we had received. And during our long season of waiting and preparing, we found additional ways, other ways to support and be involved in God's work amongst the nations. I actually want to pause and go through uh, what I think are five good ways you can participate in global missions this morning. Uh, it's, not an exhaustive, it's not an exhaustive list, but I do think it's a helpful framework. So first, uh, pray. Uh, we say on our team in Tokyo, and many missionaries across the world say this phrase, prayer is the work. Ultimately, God changes the heart hearts of men and women so they can accept him. He sets, the order, he sets the borders and orders the circumstances of the nations. And so really, prayer is our direct line to the most valuable player in global missions, God himself. All of us can and should pray for the nations. You can pray for the partnerships in Reynosa and Belize, for the workers and the organizations there, and also for the members, the community members that live in poverty, you can pray for their physical and their spiritual flourishing. You can pray for the eight other missionaries that Rooftop supports. You can get on their email list or, or get access to their updates. Please read those updates and pray for them. Uh, you can also pray for us. If, if you want to grab me after the service, give me your email. I'd love to send you our updates as well. We desperately need prayer um, as we head back to the country on the 22nd. You can pray for the nations themselves. An easy way to do this is to download the app Operation World on your smartphone. Every day it'll give you a country to pray for, it'll give you kind of stats and a description about it, and then some really helpful prayer prompts. And lastly, let's pray for more workers to be sent into the harvest. Jesus himself said, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. So pray to the Lord of the harvest that he might send more workers. 
And as we pray, let's not be super surprised if the Lord answers some of our prayers through us. Uh, A second way you can participate, of course, is going. We really do need more workers in the harvest. Have you ever considered whether or not God might be calling you? We tend to assume it's our role to stay, but what if we did the opposite? J.D. Greer, a pastor at a church known for sending, often challenges people with this. He says, put your yes on the table and let God put it on the map. What would happen if everyone in this room did that? Probably many of us would be called to stay, but I do think some of us might be called to go. Two of the eight uh, missionaries that this church supports are from Rooftop. They were sent out from Rooftop. And they're both working amongst, uh, amongst the unreached, one in Thailand and one in the Middle East. Let's pray that even more would follow their example and go. Pray about it. Consider going. We need more missionaries sent into the harvest. And if the Lord doesn't call you to go, you can consider sending. Going requires sending. There's no way around it. Missions is a team sport. Our missionaries need to be sent out in prayer through financial giving, care, and encouragement by senders who are willing to hold the rope for them as they cross cultures and do the sacrificial work of missions. Please consider supporting Strategic Alliance in the work that Roland shared about this morning. Or one of the other missionaries of this church or someone else that you know in your personal network who is going long term. We ourselves, me and my family, we're also looking for a few more monthly donors uh, to replace giving that we lost during the pandemic. If you cannot go but the Lord has blessed you with financial margin, consider sacrificially giving in order to bless the nations through sending. Uh, Number four, welcome. The world is getting more and more and more globalized And the truth is that there's a lot of opportunities to share the gospel with the nations as they come to St. Louis. In fact, many of the expat workers, the refugees, and the international students in St. Louis are from these same unreached people groups in the 1040 window. By welcoming them and showing hospitality through relationship, we can do the work of global missions even here in St. Louis. You could volunteer at Oasis International, which is a ministry that Rooftop supports, Basically, they help uh, refugees and and other migrants get acclimated to the country when they first come. You could connect with campus ministries at our local colleges. There's a lot of uh, ministries that uh, particularly welcome international students. You could even look at hosting exchange students in your home. Uh, Three supporters of ours that we talked to this summer told stories of hosting people from abroad. Two Two of those students that were from unreached people groups came to Christ during the time that they were with their host families. And you could also just go out of your way to befriend foreigners as you meet them in your place of work or in your neighborhoods. There are opportunities all around. And lastly, we can mobilize others. This is making sure that as you disciple your children, as we disciple each other in the context of the church gathering, that we do not forget about the nations, that we remind each other about God's heart for the nations and about the call that Jesus gives to make disciples of all nations. It could look like challenging others around you to consider participating through these five ways. It could be tapping brothers or sisters you know that you, who, who in whom you see gifts and passions that might be useful for the mission field, but maybe they just need a tap on the back. They need some encouragement. In short, mobilizing is helping this church or other Christians and churches follow and be faithful to our call to make disciples of all nations. So those are five ways you can participate in global missions.
sometimes when we hear messages like this, especially at these application points, uh, we start to feel a little bit guilty. And that's definitely not my goal for you this morning. So as we uh, head towards the close of this message, I want to leave you with three gospel encouragements. The first, missions is a work of grace. So when the Holy Spirit uh, came upon the disciples at Pentecost, like I said, one significant thing there was the miracle of tongues, signifying that the gospel would go not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles and beginning global missions as we know it. But the Holy Spirit coming was also the fulfillment of the new covenant. You see, Pentecost had become known in Jewish tradition as a celebration of the giving of the law to Moses. But the new covenant is about faith in Christ, grace. Jesus himself inaugurates the new covenant at the Last Supper, the new covenant that was prophesied by Ezekiel and Jeremiah in the Old Testament. And through, it, through this new covenant we, covenant, we receive the spirit of grace as we put our faith in the finished work of Christ. If you are in this room and you are a Christian saved by grace through faith, you have nothing left to earn. You have no remaining guilt to pay off. And any act of Christian obedience that you decide to take is not a means of satisfying the law, but rather it is the Holy Spirit working out sanctification in you as you become more like Christ. So let's, people, let's be a people that go not to earn Christ's love, but rather because we have been redeemed by Christ's love. Second, missions is a work of faith. Whether you decide to go or send, I can promise you this. It's costly. It's risky. It does nothing to advance your earthly security or reputation. It presses against your idols, our idols, of significance and security. At Babel, they chose to rebel against God and look for their significance and security in themselves. But in, in Genesis 12, we see that Abraham responds in faith. Though leaving his people certainly meant a loss of name, God had promised to make his name great. In Hebrews 11, it elaborates this way. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. Abraham was able to put aside his significance and his security because he knew he had faith in God's ability to provide those two very same things through the promises. Friends, if you are a follower of Christ, you are heirs of an even better promise. Your significance and your security are forever established in the finished work of Christ. He is the bridegroom, and we are the bride. We have taken his last name. Our new name, our new reputation is forever fixed and rooted in the beautiful, wonderful, righteous person of Jesus. And he is the cornerstone. He's the firm foundation that gives us an unshakable security now and forevermore in the new city of heaven. When we take hold of these gospel promises by faith, not just when we're baptized, when we become Christians, but today as we're working things out in sanctification, suddenly we can afford the lack of recognition, the obscurity, even the shame and despisement that come when we follow the Great Commission or when we follow Christ's greatest commandment to love one another, to love 
our neighbors as ourselves, or even our enemies as ourselves. And when we grab a hold of these promises, we can afford to risk our financial, emotional, and even physical security as we enter into the Great Commission and the Greatest Commandment. If you want to grow in your mission's involvement or or in any other part of your Christian life, preach the gospel to yourself every day, cling in faith to the promises of God, and watch the fruit of your life grow. Lastly, missions is a work of hope. We too can press on like Abraham with our hopes set in the city that God is building. We see glimpses of that city in some of these passages I'm going to read for you. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light, and the Lamb is its lamps is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. We know how this story ends, the story that we're living in. A gathered remnant from every nation worshiping Christ the King around his throne forever and ever. No longer do the nations rise and fall, attempting to build up their own security and significance but rather they bring the best of their culture, the best their culture has to offer day and night into the city and offer it to God as praise. No longer do the nations rage against each other in war, but the tree of life has healed the nations. There's no more sin, no more suffering, no more death, and the confusion of Babel has been forever repurposed into a multilingual, God-glorifying, Jesus-exalting choir that will continue on forever and ever throughout eternity. This is a good hope. My family and I, we, we work hard in Tokyo because we want to see Japanese people come to Christ. We are really burdened. Our hearts are broken for the spiritual state of the country, and we're prepared to give many years of ministry towards the Lord's work there. But every night we, we rest well because we know that nothing that we do is in vain and that one day, whether it's in our lifetime or not, Jesus will claim his people in Japan. One day the end will come and the multitude of saints will have a section praising God in Japanese alongside everyone else. Every nation and tongue will be represented. For all of us, it's an honor and a privilege to be a part of God's work in God's world. He invites all of us into it. And I pray that rooftop will continue to grow in its going and sending to the nations.